This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That to be joined on CFB by Kevin Harper. Many within Scottish football were known from his time playing at Hibs, also the spell at Dunfermline, and of course managed Albion Rovers as well. But many of our listeners are from England, and you'll remember him playing in the Premier League at Derby, and of course, who could forget playing at Portsmouth and their successful team that got back to the Premier League with, with some very big names in that squad as well. And I should also, of course, mention Stoke because he played at Stoke and was successful there as well. First of all, Kevin, how are you? I'm good. How good, Calum? You? I'm not bad at all. And, and the first question I've got for you, Kevin, um, you are managing Albion Rovers. How do you reflect on your time there as a whole? I think for, I think for my first job, I think I've done really, really well, if I'm honest. You know, uh, we, we, I took over when we were seven points adrift. You know, at the bottom of the table, seven points adrift. You know, we had played 13 games. Uh, the club had played 13 games. So, you know, we had 27, 27 games uh, to turn that around. Sort of, well, 20, 20, 25, something like that, games to turn that around. You know, went, uh, went in and, and enjoyed it. You know, I realised early on that I would have to change pretty much the whole team if, I was going to, if we were going to stay up. You know, because I think... We they had a squad of people they accepted getting beat. You know they didn't. They weren't able to step up to what I wanted them to do. And that's no disrespect to the players that were there. That's you know just part and parcel of football. Sometimes you know I've, I've experienced that myself. Uh, but you know I had to I had to look at it and change the whole team. So the the joy of staying up with we eight points was a huge huge turnaround for us. You know there was a lot of things in there. That, that helped us, you know, but there was a lot of things that, you know, brought us together as a team, you know, unfortunately, our goalkeeping coach, Michael Duke, uh, passed away, you know, that sort of galvanised the whole, the whole dressing room, that gave it, became, became even tighter than what we were, you know, and the first thing for me going in was I had to try and uh, stop conceding as many goals as we were, we were conceding two and three every game, you know, and that was, that was a major thing for us, if you concede two and three goals, Every game, it's very, it's highly unlikely that you're going to win games. In terms of managing at part-time level, just how challenging can that be? Because people, when they, they hear Kevin Harper's a manager now, especially those down south, they assume, right, he's in a full-time job, he's got the players every single day. But as you know, in Scotland, in the lower leagues, that's not the reality. No, it was, it was difficult because I had never been part-time myself. You know, but I take, I take my hat off to, to the players. You know, we... We worked our socks off to make them better, you know, make them understand the game uh, and become more accustomed to what it was like being a professional. And that's no disrespect to previous managers that were there, you know, but at the end of the day, I, I came in and I, I felt that it wasn't it wasn't professional. Uh, that was the first thing that, that I had to change. I had to change the thought process of the players there. Uh, and as I said, as I said earlier, 
the players just weren't up to it, you know, and that's, you know, some of them, they get, we, we had to change. I think I changed something like 11 players. I had the players from when I took over in November and I couldn't change any till pretty much January. So, you know, that was a real difficult, that real struggle, you know, so we were always looking at, we were always looking at results coming in, you know, because I always knew it would be the, the, the final quarter. If we were in within touching distance, then the, the final quarter would be the one that would take us, you know, create and make us safe because we would win enough games that would, would take us here. But we needed a little bit of luck as well. We needed Berwick Rangers, who were the team above us, you know, we had they had to they had to they had to lose games as well. You know, because if they had been on a run of five games then I think we would we would have been doomed. You know, but probably the biggest thing looking at it was when they came to our place and they, we were one and one now and they scored pretty much about five, about eight minutes left of the game. They, you know, were celebrating on the pitch. And I said that to the players after the, after the game. Remember that? Remember that? They thought they, they thought that was it. It was done and dusted. You know, and we, we, show, we showed that we brought in some, some really good characters that we were looking for, that we needed, uh, and real good players as well. You know, and, it, and we went on a run in the, the last quarter and picked up something like 17 points, you know, out of, out of you know, uh, 30 points. We picked up 17, so... You know, that was that was the majority of our point. Well, that was the majority of our points the whole game, the whole season. Well, the thing that comes across there from what you're saying is the fact that you mentioned Berwick Rangers, and, and I've spoken to a few of the guys at that club, and although they are positive and they are hoping to be back on the up, you've just got to think the damage that can be caused to a club by going out of the, the SPFL, and, and the fact that, especially for Albion Rovers, it's, it's not a club, as you've already alluded to, that's exactly flush with cash, so keeping them up really, let's be honest with you, in many ways saved the club. Oh, no, I, th- I think I've, I've, I've had people say that to me. I've had that had people, you know, in the club say that to me as well. You know, I think we stay, keeping them up saved them from oblivion probably. You know, unless somebody was going to come in with real, real hard money, you know, they would probably have been in the Lowland League and, you know, might not even been able to survive that, you know, because the club is, is run really, really tight. You know, there's the, the we are got the lowest they had the lowest budget in the league. You know, so you're not you're not flush with cash like you say, but you have to you have to sort of do a bit of wheeling and dealing, have to speak to people. We were fortunate enough the second season that people wanted to come to us because of what I had done the previous year. You know, and, and players talk and you know, I still speak I still speak to a lot of players that were at Albion Rovers and have moved on, have moved on to better things, have been you know, two year, two of your players were in team of the league two team of the year this year. You know, so it was we brought in we brought in players that, you know, we knew their quality. They just probably needed a little bit of guidance and a bit of more understanding and obviously a little bit more confidence than where they were, but they liked, you know, what we were what we were trying to do. You know, because when I went into Albion Rovers we had a sports therapist. We didn't have a a physio, we had a sports therapist and it, the sports therapist is still there and he's he's very, very good. You know, but we I brought in a, a physio, a sports psychologist, a sports scientist, so it made it really, really professional. You know, we weren't we weren't allowing, you know, parents to go and go on the team bus, etc. that was happening before. You know, there was some some times there was a drink, alcohol allowed in away games, you know, coming back, that wasn't allowed. So we changed the whole changed the whole culture of professional from what I knew, you know, from what I had experienced was 
about being professional and making sure that you give yourself the best opportunity to win games. You know, and people have to buy into that. You know, they have to understand what you're trying to do. And, and thankfully, the players did, you know, and, and they bought into what I was trying to do. They enjoyed the, the fact that we're trying to, you know, get make them better. And I think it, it shows, you know, the amount of, amount of players that I brought in that have now went to, you know, other clubs from the time that I've left the club. In terms of yourself, you've reflected on your time there. You're happy with your record at Albion Rovers. So where are you hoping to go next? Are you, are you looking at the League Two in Scotland or uh, would you look down south? What are your plans for the future? I, I think for, for me, I would look, I'd look anywhere, you know, for, a, for another job. I think probably, you know, from what I've done looking at Albion Rovers, I think I probably deserve another shot, you know, whether that's in League Two or whether it's somewhere else. I don't know, you know, whether that comes or not is a different as a different story. But as I say, if, if Albion Rovers is my first and only job, then I can I can take away that I left it, I saved the club from probably going into oblivion and I left the club in a better place than what it was when I walked through the door. And for me that's the most important thing as a as a coach manager, that if you go into a club and you either leave or you get the sack, that the club is in a better position, you know, in a better shape than when you you first took over. That's the most important thing for me. Well, that's the thing, and that can only stand you in good stead, and, and I wish you all the best with that. One of the things I, I want to speak to you about, and I know you've spoken about it quite a few times recently, but I read a statistic going into this season. Alex Dyer is the first permanent black manager in Scotland in the top flight since John Barnes. Just sum up how that makes you feel, because when I, I read that, my, my eyebrows just went up straight away, and I thought, that is, when you think about it, that's absolutely scandalous. It is, you know, that's 17 years ago, John Barnes was a manager of Celtic, you know, and, and as you say, Alec Dyer is the first, first in 17 years. And I've said, I even said when I got the, the Albion Rovers job, I was the first black manager in Scotland in 15 years. You know, and, and for me, if that's in any other walk of life, you know, there would be outcry. But for some reason, it's acceptable in football, in Scottish football. You know, and I look at it as well, people look at it in the sense of, Okay, there's only there's only forty clubs in in, in Scotland, so there's only 40, 40 managers positions. But even behind the scenes in coaches and assistant coaches, I don't think there's another black or ethnic person coaching or assistant manager in Scotland. So if you look at that being, you know, on average, you know, every every if you take the averages and say every club has got, you know, an assistant manager and a first team coach. So that's three positions. You know, that's over a hundred and a hundred and twenty plus positions, and there's only one black or ethnic person in any one of the positions. It's outrage. It's just an out. It's an absolute scandal, in my opinion. You know, but at the end of the day, what are what are Scottish football doing about it? In my opinion, absolutely nothing. I don't see them trying to make any inroads into it. You know, yeah, you can you can look at the black players that are there, you know, and playing play in Scotland, maybe 10%, you know, 8%. But the percentage of black and ethnic managers is point, something like 0.8, point, 0.4%. You know, so there's a huge, huge discrepancy there. You know, and even, even at, the top, at the top reaches of the SPFL, how many, how many black, black or ethnic people are advising or on, you know, in there speaking about this is how we can move forward? You know, so, you know, for me, Scottish football isn't doing enough 
about it. You know, it's not about, I say this all the time, it's not about me wanting a job because I'm black or expecting a job that I'm, because I'm black. No way, I don't, I don't deserve anything because of my colour. But what I do deserve is an equal opportunity, the same as anybody else and the same as any other white or whoever, you know, whatever colour person is going for a job. I deserve the, an equal opportunity and that doesn't happen, plain and simple. A lot of the time, especially down south, it's been mooted that the Rooney Rule could be adopted where at least one black or ethnic minority candidate would have to be interviewed for all jobs. Is that something that you think could be a positive because you would be able to express your views and have a chance? Or is there part of you that thinks if that was to come in, it would result in tokenism where, yes, they'll interview someone, but they'll just, it'll just be the same old structure as it was anyway? I think, I think for me, it's a tick box exercise. You know, most of most of these chairmen and boards have a preconceived idea of who the manager is going to be before they actually sack the manager or the manager leaves. You know, the prime example of recent is is uh, Neil Warnock at Middlesbrough. You know, Jonathan Woodgate gets the sack one day and Neil Warnock's in the next day. You know, so at the end of the day, interviewing someone is a waste of time when that's already been done. You've already spoken to a a manager that you want in, you know, and that's that happens just across the board. That's I'm just saying Neil Warnock, I'm just mentioning Neil Warnock purely because that's the most recent one that I can think of that is sort of been out of a job, somebody's got the sack and he's been in the next day. You know, so that happens right across the board. So if a football club is willing to put it out, i.e. to tender, you know, the football manager's role when they get in, they get CVs in and they go through the CVs, then yeah. You've got to, yeah, the Rooney Rule works then, but how does it work when it's an afterthought? You know, like like the like that I'm just saying about Middlesbrough. You know, Middlesbrough, fantastic club, fantastic chairman. You know, they've got the chairman obviously wanted Neil Warnock in because of his record of saving people and getting getting people promoted from the championship, which Neil Warnock's a, an excellent manager, his stats speak for themselves. You know, but if you're talking about a Rooney Rule and that's the perfect, you know, uh, the the perfect the perfect note that you can look at and say, well, how does a Rooney Rule fit in that situation? It doesn't, because it, it then is a tick box. Well, as you've said, especially in that regard, that example, as you've said, if a, if a, if a club chairman or, or the board as a whole, as you've said there, have got an opinion as to who they want next, then you're right, it becomes a tick box exercise. If not the Rooney Rule, how do you think? We, we can solve this. I know a lot of the time you look at down south, QPR are one of the clubs. You've got Les Ferdinand, who um, is in a, a good position of power there. Yeah. He's director of football, a black man in, in a really good position of power there, which is, which is great to see. Do you think that's the only realistic way where these prejudices can be challenged and that there can be a fair crack of the whip for, for, for everyone of all the ethnicities? Because as you've, as you've alluded to earlier, and it's... It's, it suppose it's as terrible as it is. It's, it's just the way football's always kind of been programmed, where the majority of people in control at clubs are white. Therefore, the statistics when it comes to managers and coaches that are hired are also predominantly white. And until that boardroom structure, I think, gets gets broken into and, 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 and you've got black coaches, you've got black directors who can work their way up the, the system, I think, that for me anyway, that's what screams out is what really needs to be done. I, th- I, think, I think right at this present moment, change 
change is the institutional side of things, like you're saying, you know, there is institutional racism in football, that's a fact, you know, because at the end of the day, I appreciate that there's not, there's probably not many, you know, there's not a, you know, if you're, if you're looking at a hundred coaches, how many of them would be black or ethnic, you know, I don't know, maybe 10% of them, maybe 10 of them, I appreciate that, that, you know, there's a smaller, there's a smaller minority, that's going to, that's happening anyway, that's a fact, but at the end of the day, if you're a coach and you're not getting an opportunity to showcase your ability, how how does a club know that they have the best coach? You know, for me, if if I get an interview, then that's brilliant. You know, because it's up to me to show my, you know, go and tell them what I can do for the club. If it marries what they think, then I've got an opportunity of getting that job. You know, I. As I say, said earlier, I don't want a job because of colour. I want an, an equal opportunity to get in, to say, sit down in front of the board or the chairman or director of football, whoever it is, and go, this is me, this is what I can do for your club, this is my experiences, this is what I've done. You know, and at the end of the day, if they come away and say, you know what, Kevin, really good interview, but we're going to go with some, somebody else then, that's fair, that's fair. But what, what disappoints me is when you know that you're a better candidate than someone, and they get the job, and you don't even get an interview. Why is that? And is I always make this analogy of it: if Kevin Harper and Zinedine Zidane's CV went into Albion Rovers for talking for talking sake, and they didn't know who Zinedine Zidane was, they didn't know who Kevin Harper was, and they're basing that based on their CV of what they've done in the game. Zinedine, Zinedine Zidane should get the interview every single time. Because looking at his CV, it's much it's much better than Kevin Harper's. But that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. It's too many. You know, it's the chairman's mate or the chairman knows an agent who's got somebody on his books that wants to. You know, you should have a look at him. He's well in with the he's well in with the chairman. He's well in with the agent, and that's what happens. You know. So at the end of the day, how are you getting the best opportunity? How are you interviewing people to see if they're the best candidates for the job? You're not. You're taking a word of an agent. And maybe having a chat with him, chat with his his client, you know. So for me, it starts. You have to get you have to get black and ethnic people people into coaching, into the coaching side of the club, you know. Whether it's assistant manager, whether it's first team first team coach, like Stevie Clark done with Alex Dyer, you know, he brought he brought him in, he brought Alex Dyer in as a his assistant. Stevie Clark left the club to go and get the Scotland job, and come on, not wiped away. Uh, Dyer done his business and offered him the job put him on trial, he done really well and then he got the job you know the irony of all this is that we have about 120 plus opportunities in Scottish football and we have one black or ethnic manager in the whole system yet we have three positions in the Scotland, Scotland national team and two, two, of, two of them are black you know so that, that sums it up, as you've said, and it's something that definitely has to change, not just in football, but in society as well. When you look at positions of power, I, I totally agree with that. And I honestly think that for me, it needs to change sooner rather than later. I mean, again, Kevin, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm speaking to you here as, as, a, as a young white male. I, mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't speak to you and pretend to understand what it feels like to be discriminated against for the colour of my skin. And I never would pretend that I yeah. know what that's like. And for me, I, as, I, as a young white male, 
I'm honest enough to, to look at society and look at football and things around me and, and, and know that things have to change. And, and this is not me even a go at certain charities, kick it out, etc. I can totally understand they're trying their best and they, they want to raise the profile. But when it comes to football, it, it needs to become more than just wearing a shows racism, the red card t-shirt. It needs to become more than just having a kick it out banner. Even even the even the Neil, it's it's something that I fully support, I fully back. But we can't just do the Neil for the first eight games of the season and then move on as if that's it fixed. There needs to be yeah. more. No, I, I totally agree with you. You know, I totally agree with, you know, show racism, the red card, kick it out, should should be able to do more. They they've got to do more. You know, they are they're the two the two charities that you look at and you go well, that's in football. Football has a huge, huge platform to change societal issues. You know, you just look at Marcus Rashford. You know, you look at Raheem Sterling. You know, you look at even go to America, American football. You look at Colin Kaepernick, who started the but the the Neil. You know, he's been he's been he's not even had a job since he done that. So purely because of race, and that's why he's doing it. You know, he's he's literally said, well, you know what. At the end of the day, I'm I'm standing up for what I believe in. Yeah, things have to change. Things definitely have to change, but it has to has to change from the top. You know, the SPFL, SFA have to look at it and have to start changing things. You know, because if you look, if you go in the corridors of power of football, how many black people are in in the Scottish game that are in the in the upper echelons of football? You know, in the SFA, in the SPFL, who do they talk to? Who do they talk to when they're, you know, trying to trying to make things right? You know, and at the end of the day, I've been I've been saying this for pretty much probably over twenty five years since I first got racially abused at football. You know, when I was a young when I was a young kid breaking through at Hibs, and then you know didn't see anything, but then after that realised that no, this isn't right. So I have to I have to start speaking up. And at the end of the day, people will say that. I'm banging on a drum about it. But at the end of the day, we're still talking about it 20, 25 plus years later and nothing's changed. It's actually, in my opinion, got worse. Well, the thing you've said there, the people that, that say, oh, you're banging on a drum, I mean, I'm sorry to these people, but if you're, if, if, to give them their quote, banging on a drum 25 years later, then that shows you that the problem's still here. Because this is the thing that these people, I think, sometimes forget, Kevin, is the fact that, you want nothing more, and people from black backgrounds, ethnic minority backgrounds, want nothing more for there to be a day where they don't need to, to quote those people, bang on the drum because it's sorted. Nobody yeah. wants that more than black and ethnic minority people. And sometimes I think that's what, what people misunderstand. I think they, they think, oh, this guy or this group constantly go on and on and on. But the key point is the day they don't, according to these people, go on and on and on, the problem will be in a position where people are happy and things have yeah. moved on. And, and yeah. I think that's something that, that, again, these charities, players, football as a whole, needs to, to get that message. And, and, and for me, Kevin, I, I spoke to Nathan Austin. He told me a story when, when he arrived in Scotland that he was racially abused coming through the system. And, and stories like that sadden me because you, you look at our game and our top flight at the moment, you look at Alfredo Morelos, you look at Odson Edward, Jeremy Frimpong, um, there's, there's Shea Ojo's at Aberdeen there's, there's plenty of examples Shea Logan another one yeah. um, that come to mind who are good black footballers who are, are doing a great job week in week out and that has to come into the coaching side of it but 
I just want to thank you for, for that discussion. And, and as I say, I'm, I'm, I'm honest and open. When it comes to how it feels to be not getting interviews, how it, when it comes to being racially abused, as I say, I'm a young white male. I can't yeah. pretend to understand that, but I thank you for, for sharing your opinions on it. No, no, at the end of the day, Cam, I'm, I'm very big on racial equality. You know, I have a, a huge, huge uh, understanding of it. You know, I'm 44 years old and I've been racially abused pretty much every day in some some form for 40 years, the best part of 40 years since I was four, you know, probably before that, you know, and, and people think that racial abuse is just people calling you, calling you names, et cetera, et cetera. But it's maybe when I'm walking down the street with my, with my wife and she's white and my, my two, my two, two of my kids, probably three of my kids are lighter than me and my boy's darker than me and they're looking at my kids and going, you know, you can see the you can see the little hamster going in their head and saying, Well, are they his, are they are they together or what's it what's the situation? Or, you know, you're going to get money out of the bank and, you know, you're standing behind someone, they pull their bag closer to you. You know, that's that's ra- that's racial. That's racial abuse. Yeah, it's unconscious racism, but it's still racism and I have to go through that every single day. And you know, I'm not here to for people to put pity on me. Far from it. You know, I'm a proud black man. You know, but at the end of the day, don't think I don't I don't think and I don't feel that I should be treated any differently just because I've got a different colour of skin. You know, at the end of the day, we all we're all born, we all die, we all have red blood. You know, at the end of the day, that's that's it. We're all humans. And you know, I would I would be saying this the, the same way, with the same passion. If I if Scotland was, you know, a majority of black, you know, and there was a, a and the white were white people were uh being marginalised and not getting, you know, equal opportunity. I would be saying exactly the same as what I'm saying just now, you know, because we all deserve equal opportunity, no matter what we are through, you know, race, religion, sexual orientation. Who cares? We're all we're all one. And at the end of the day, football is a huge, huge platform. And and football is is my life. It has been my life for, you know, so, so many years, you know, and the biggest disappointment is that I'm still talking about this 25 years later. And for me, especially in Scotland, you know, I don't think there's been anything done about it. You know, I think racism will always be, until we start speaking about it and start putting it out there, will always be the elephant in the room that it will rear its head. And then people trying to try to put it to bed for a year or so, and then it will uh, rear its head again. But I think just now with the Black Lives Matter and people look at, and I've had many people say to me, all lives matter. And I I have, I have totally agree with that. Every person's life matters. But at the end of the day, black lives matter for equality. That's the thing. White people's lives matter as well, but they're not being marginalized. They've not been marginalized for hundreds of years, you know, hundreds of years. You look at slavery in the sense of black and white, only stopped in America in the 80s, in the 80s, 40 years ago. You know, so for me, black people have been, you know, had to work harder to get to positions than white people. And that's fact. That's not me making something up. But at the end of the day, I'll reiterate, I do not deserve a job in football because I'm black. I deserve an equal opportunity to get that job. But I do not deserve a job purely because I'm black and because of my colour. Very powerful, and as I say, I thank you for 
for your words, Kevin, because when it comes to this, I think it's important that, that we hear from people like yourself rather than someone like me trying to sit on a pedestal and pretend I know what it feels like. So so I thank you for that. And and, and to go to, to your playing career now, came through at Hutchie Vale before getting the chance to, to go into Hibs. Just describe the excitement around that time when, when you were making your way in football and you get into a professional club. It was it was it was fantastic. You know, I started off, I get signed at Hibsway and S form when I was at West Park and uh, West Park and Bishop Briggs in Glasgow. And, you know, my journey to the end was was a, a real strange one because, you know, I only got into football purely because I was out playing with my mate in the street in Postle Park. And he's like, when I was about 10, and he says, listen, I have to go up the road. I've got football training. And I just said to him, well, what am I meant to do? And he's like, I don't know. And says, is it okay if I come with you? And he says, yeah, no problem. So I just jaunted along to, to the club that he was at, which was... In Sight Hill, it's probably about a mile away. Uh, the back end of Sight Hill, probably a mile and something away. In the days, you could you could walk that without worrying. And that's how I started. You know, a team called Celtic North, and then I went to went to West Park under a under a guy under a manager called Bert Round, who's no longer with us, and, and Billy Harvey. And they were they were really two coaches that you know I pretty much owe my footballing career to. You know because. They, especially in that stage, they told me that, you know, as a black man and I was probably one of the best players in, in the league at that time and, you know, I was getting racially abused that, like, you would not believe from parents, from players in the team. You know, every every Saturday I played, I was getting racially abused from minute minute zero to minute 90 or however long it was. But And I was always wanting to fight with people. You know, I came from a rough area. And they, they too said, listen, Kevin, you can't keep fighting with people. It's not going to get you anywhere. You have to let, let, your, let your football do the talking. And that's actually what I've done. And I think if it wasn't for the two guys you know, guiding me at that point, then I probably wouldn't have stayed in football for the, for the abuse that I, had, that I had been getting. You know, and obviously I signed with, signed with Hibs and Alec Miller just, I think, was under a little bit of pressure. I think he, he felt that some clubs from this side of the from the, the West were going to take me and he said I had to go to Hutchie Vale. I think I was only, if memory serves me right, I can only, I think I might only have been there for about six months or something. Uh, and then I sort of went full well, went full time at, you know, two weeks before my 16th birthday and then made my debut at, at 17, you know, and Alec Miller was, was a guiding light for me as well, you know, in football, you know, growing up, you know, he came to my, he came to my house when I signed the S form, you know, and, spoke to my mum and spoke to myself and you know he was true to his word in the sense he was going to develop me. I had he said that I had talent, he was going to develop me and hopefully, you know, put me in the right path and he, he certainly did. And you know, I'm eternally grateful for him, you know, and for Hibs and to Hibs for, you know, giving me my debut and giving me that opportunity to become a footballer. You mentioned your debut there. I want you to talk me through scoring your first goal. You're in front of the home crowd against Dundee United. Just how how do you look back in that? Because I always imagine that for a player, especially an attack-minded player, that scoring your first goal must just be the best feeling in the world. No, it was it, that was that was pretty much my second season. I think you know uh, when I when I made my debut, that was the first game of the season. We had we beat Dundee United five uh, five nil that day, and you know scoring my first goal at first professional senior goal at Easter Road in front of the fans was, was fantastic and that's one of the memories that will be with me to the day that I die, you know, and it's a special spe- special moment 
because you know for me football was about you know just enjoyment going and playing you know and then all of a sudden you know every pretty much every kid probably 90% of kids wanted to be a footballer you know back in the day you know it's maybe a wee bit different now uh, but certainly when I was growing up pretty much every every boy wanted to be a footballer and every girl wanted to be a model and I think that was the two things that that happened you know and for me to you know be able to play football was you know a real real you know I still look at it and I'm a very 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 privileged person that I can say that I played professional football for you know the best part of 17 years for a living and that was that was my job for 17 years and I, I feel very very proud of that and scoring my first goal and and at home was you know an amazing an amazing situation and place to be. What was it like playing week in week out Easter Road when you break into the team? And also, who were the big characters in that Hibs team that not only helped you along the way but but helped the team along the way as well? I think I think you look at you look at Darren Jackson, Keith Wright, you know, uh, Kevin McAllister, Mickey Weir. You know, I could go. I, I think pretty much for me the whole team. You know, John Burridge was was goalkeeper as well when I was there. You know, uh, Ray Wilkins, God rest him, played as well. You know, Pat McGinley, Gordon Hunter, you know, Willie Miller, Tommy McIntyre, you know, Graham Mitchell, uh, Brian Hamilton. So there was Tony Rougier played as well. You know, so there was there was a, a real a real depth of attacking now in that team. You know, and I was saying that earlier today. Probably, if you look back at the Hibs team, we're probably a team that nobody ever remembers in essence. You know, because you know, we were attacking, but people didn't seem to think we were attacking. I think a lot of people thought that Alec Miller was a defensive coach, but when you look at, you know, our forward our forward line, it consisted of, you know, myself, Darren Jackson, Keith Wright, uh, Michael O'Neill, you know, Kevin McAllister, Tony Rougier, Mickey Weir, you know, people like that. Pat McGinley in midfield who scored, was a top goal scorer. You know, he went. He moved to Celtic for a year and was top goal scorer at Celtic as well. You know, so we had real attacking flair. You know, Graham Mitchell on one side, and you know, left back and Willie Miller and uh, right back, both wanted to attack as well. So you know, it was for me. It was easy to come into. You know, they were all characters. You know, and they all all assisted me in their own different ways. You know, but I have to probably give a shout out to the physio Stuart Colley who was there. You know, I had a lot of injuries. I dislocated my shoulder and. You know, even as a as, as a young kid, yeah, he, he probably pissed me off a lot a lot of the time because he was in charge of the the YTS boys. And when I went in, I was YTS, and we had to obviously brush the stadium, do the do the do the kit, wash the wash the you know the changing rooms and stuff after training, and get all the kit. And he was he was a driving force behind that. And you know, yeah, you wanted I wanted to shoot away early because I was trying to get home in Glasgow, but you know, he made the stay, and but. At the end of the day, it was a good grounding. It was a really good grounding for me, you know, and it disciplined me a hell of a lot that, you know, so, you know, he's probably one of the guys that probably doesn't take as, get as much credit as, you know, Alec Miller, you know, uh, Andy Watson, you know, even Murdo McLeod was there as well when I was there in the assistance and, you know, Jockey Scott when he came in. But, you know, Stuart College, one of the guys that, you know, was an excellent physio, you know, and for me, you know, when I dislocated my shoulder he, and I had any injuries, he was really, really, you know, there for me as a young kid and, and, and drove me through the, the hard times that I had there. You mentioned the, the late Ray Wilkins. Now, feel free to tell me if I'm wrong with this, but he always came across in interviews and 
I never got to see him play live, of course, because of my age, but he just seemed like such a calming influence. Was that the way he was on the field as well? Yeah, yeah, he was such a, such a, you know, I think everybody says he was such a lovely, a lovely guy. You know, he was, he could play as well, you know, and I remember, I remember he, when he came, he came to Hibs, I think he got given a Rolls Royce to drive about in, and he was actually embarrassed driving it. You know, he's like driving into where we were, where we were training was, you know, a bit of a rugby, a rugby pitch at the time. You know, it was football, but it was very undulating and he's running, he's coming in with this big uh, Rolls Royce and, you know, he's like, Kevin, this is embarrassing, me driving in here with this. You know, but he was just embarrassed because, yeah, he was he was just unassuming, real, real down-to-earth guy. He wasn't flashy or anything, you know, that's what he came across like and, you know, he would speak to anybody, he was always there for you if you ever needed him. You know, and as a young kid, you know, I spoke to him a, a hell of a lot. You know, and he, he guided me in a path that, you know, he, was, he wasn't at Hibs for, Hibs for long, but, you know, the impact he made and I think probably the club and, and a lot of the people was, you know, a big, big impact. The Edinburgh Derby is the obvious question I have to ask every player that's played for either Hearts <laughs> or Hibs. You've played in those Derby matches, but crucially you've scored the winner in, in, in a Derby match as well on New yeah. Year's Day. Just sum that feeling up, because when you watch those games on TV, they're, they're incredibly ferocious. Oh, they are. They are, you know, and I remember that I remember that vividly, you know, because we had just been beat off Rangers 7-0 at Ibrooks eh, about two days before, two or three days before, and I was coming back from a, a hamstring injury and I got on against Rangers and went on at half time and changed the game. We were 2-0 down and ended up getting beat seven. So for me, obviously I changed the game for for, for Rangers. Eh, I was a weak link, I think. But that was a game that Gaza got booked and then when going into the derby, you know, Neil Pointing scored after about six minutes or something. And I remember walking back to the halfway line thinking, oh my word, you know, and I think Jim Layton made a great save, if memory serves me right. I can't remember who it was from. It won now. And then Mike O'Neill scored uh, in a header, I think it was. And then, you know, I scored a, I scored the volley from the edge of the box. Uh, then you know, that was, a, that was a winning goal. The New Year's Day was, you know, I think if you're asking any player what their dream situation would be, it would be either to score the winner that relegates your rivals, you know, score the, score the winner that gets you promoted or score the winner on New Year's Day against your rivals because nobody ever forgets New Year's Day. You know, everybody's ready for, ready for the game. It's a real, real big celebration as well. You know, and for, for me as a young kid, to score the winner in that day, you know, after such a drubbing we got against Rangers was was a real, real special, special moment and one that I will definitely never forget. And I'll bring it up as, as much as I can because it's, you know, it's fantastic. <laughs> I, I don't blame you at all. It's, if, I scored, if I even got on the pitch in the Edinburgh Derby, I'd bring it up to, the, to everybody. But another game that you you, you scored at a, winner, at a winner in was a game against Rangers at Easter Road as well. I mean, yeah. I imagine that's something you replay in your head many times. Yeah, I think I think that was that was a game that probably took me from you know just a young kid breaking through to who is this kid? This kid's got real opportunity uh, because I, I I noticed certainly the difference in how people looked at you after that. You know, you sort of became not necessarily a household name, but you know you were a, a black kid from Scotland. You know, you'd scored the winner against Rangers, and all everything changed. Everything changed on that day. You know, people. 
after that, people were coming up and asking for your autograph. They were coming up and speaking to you about football. People seemed to know who I was then, you know. So it, it you know, the the circle get even bigger. You know, it was it wasn't that you could just go out and just be yourself. You know, you had to be you had to be watching all the time of what you were doing because people then knew who you were. You know, you're standing in queues to you know even just go shopping. You know, people were asking coming up and asking you for their autograph and. You know, I was, that was probably the, the catalyst from, you know, going from just a normal, a normal player into, you know, somebody that was pretty well known at that, at that present moment in time. In terms of your last full season at Hibs, it was disappointing for the club in the sense that mm-hmm. the club's relegated, but quite catch-22 is so often happens in football. It's a bad season for the club, but there's still a lot of interest in you because, as you mentioned, you're coming through, people are wondering who you are. Is it something, obviously, you look back on and, and you're absolutely gutted that not only you go down, but crucially, you didn't really get the chance to say goodbye to the fans as well because of the, the nature of how quickly everything turned around and you were off to Derby County? Yeah, I think that's the, the biggest the biggest regret for me. And I've said that many, many times. You know, that was a real disappointing season for us because I think that season, probably the turn of the year, we were second, second top. We were maybe even top of the league, I think, possibly. Uh, and we just went on free, we just went in free fall. From the turn of the year, you know, we had a lot of injuries, and you know, it just didn't it didn't happen for us. It didn't really happen, and you know, for then then the next season comes in, and you know, the new manager Alec McLeish comes in, and you know, he's obviously looking for for money to to spend, you know, and that was probably the prime asset at that time. Uh, and he decided that you know the club were willing to sell me, you know, and. I always remember it because we had, had been suspended for the first game of the season, I think. The last two games in the first game of the season, I think I had been suspended for. Uh, and we played Clyde Bank. So that was my last game. I came on as a sub, we drew two each. I scored. And then we were due to play Dundee United, I think, in the Cup midweek. And I got a phone call from from the manager and said, listen, uh, Derby County are wanting to take you down in trial. Uh, I went down, played 70 minutes, done really well, and then came back up the road and never really thought anything about it. You know, was preparing for the for the game, the cup game, and the manager says, hey, listen, Derby County, you want to sign you. You know, so you'll not be you'll not be involved in, in the cup game. And you know, even even the Saturday at Clyde Bank, I had never never any inkling that that was going to happen. So that was the biggest the biggest disappointment, not being able to say a huge thank you to the fans and just, you know, almost felt as if I was sulking off, you know, out of the out of the into the darkness. And in essence, you know, and I went down to Derby and you know in the Premier League it was something that probably I, I couldn't I couldn't turn down at that point. I've got to ask you about the main man, Jim Smith. Just what was he like to, to play under? Because I spoke to Craig Burley recently and he said Jim is just one of the biggest characters he's ever met, never mind football, just in life itself. Yeah, I think I think everybody knows what Jim was like. You know, when I was when I was at Derby, you know, I was fortunate enough to work under, you know, Steve McLaren was his assistant and Steve Round, who's now the assistant at Arsenal, was, you know, the first team coach. So, you know, Steve McLaren done pretty much everything. You saw Jim on a Monday when he would he would come in and he would do a wee bit of talk on the on the game the previous Saturday and then he would just give you you just be the character he was. You know, he would he would have a chat with you, he would just annoy you living daylights out of you, he would just tell you that you are you were this and you were that and but all in all in good fun. You know, even if you even if you played amazingly, 
he would go, ah, he didn't have that best of game and stuff. You know, we had won 5 now or something. You know, he would come in and then he would disappear the Monday and you wouldn't see him until the Thursday. You know, we were doing, they still had the baseball ground at the time. You know, so they, they had Pride Park and they had base, the baseball ground. So we we used to do a lot of shaping and stuff. And 11, 11 v 11 on a Thursday and you would just hear Jim bellowing from the side, you know, when we were doing that. And, you knew that he was getting into he was getting into football mode. You know he was getting into Saturday mode. And you know for for me, he's I was fortunate enough to work with him at Portsmouth as well when Harry took over. He was the assistant, and you know not a day goes by that you know Jim Smith didn't make you smile or didn't make you laugh. And you know that was that was his probably him and Harry are probably the two best man managers that I've ever ever worked under. You know in the sense of getting you ready for a game and getting you believing in what you what you do. You know, and is it when I was at Derby, it didn't work out. It didn't work out. You know, I was only there for 18 months and that was the biggest disappointment. I felt as if I probably deserved more game time. But you know, obviously Jim Smith didn't. You know, and but there was no hard feelings or nothing. You know, I went on to pastures new and as I say, linked up again with him when when I was at Portsmouth. You mentioned the fact it doesn't work out, but in your first season you, you do play albeit not starting as much as you'd like, but you do play a, a fair number of games and mm-hmm. you finish eighth in the Premier League and get to the quarterfinals of the FA Cup. So when you look at where Derby County are now, it feels like forever since they've been back in the Premier League, I think it was 2008, and every single year they always seem like that team that are going for automatics and get into the playoffs, are pushing for playoffs and just miss out. So yeah. when you look at that now, I mean, you must look back in that and think it was a good team to be part of because... I was watching, for instance, Premier League years a couple of weeks ago, and and Pablo Wonshaw that season was just yeah. on fire. Yeah, no, it was it was it was a great time. You know, that's the highest they had, they had finished. They finished in the Premier League that season. You know, I think I, I made something like forty odd appearances. You know, albeit most of them were from the from the bench. You know, but you know, I felt I felt that I could have done more. I, I felt that I had. I should have got more opportunity, but you know, at the end of the day, it's the manager's decision. He lives and dies by his decision. You know, I realised that. You know, probably didn't realise that at the time, but as you get older, you realise that. But you know, we had we had a, we had an unbelievable side. You know, we had a real a real blend of work, creativity, and goals. You know, we had Mark Poom, for instance, in goal. You know, and then we had Igor Stimak, centre centre midfield. We had Stefan, sorry, centre half. Stefan Iranio played, you know, Chicho Bayano, you know, Daryl Powell played, uh, Lars Behinen, Lars Jacobson, uh, Paolo Wonchop up top, Dean Sturridge up top, you know, Rory Delap, you know, so we had, you know, Stefan Snor. So we had a, a real, real mixture of, you know, really good, really good quality players along with, you know, a real hard working side. And, you know, people that were on the bench were were cap- more than capable of coming in and doing doing their bit as well. When, Ever we had injuries, and that's probably how you know we got to that point. You know, we had a real good management site management team as well, real good management setup, and that's probably how we finished eighth. You know, because Jim Smith and Steve McLaren and Steve Round did what work miracles at times as well. See, in terms of Steve McLaren, I know he was linked to Dundee United recently. Ultimately, it goes to Mickey Mellon in the end. But just what was he like as a coach? Because everyone that I've spoken to when they talk about his coaching ability just wax lyrical about. Him. Oh, he was he was sensational, sensational coach. You know, he was way ahead of his time. You know, I, I always remember, you know, thinking every single thing we do rolls into something else. You know, so say we were doing four different things in, in training, you know, part one would be 
the base, and then part two would be a follow-on from part one, and part three would be a follow-on from part two and part part one, and then the game would be a culmination of all three. You know, and for for me, when I moved down there, that was that was well ahead of their time. You know, but it was it was so structured, it was so you know so intense, it was you know on a different level from anything that I had seen. And that's no disrespect to anybody prior to that or after that. You know, but you know, Steve McLaren for me was is probably the best coach that I've ever worked under. You know, hands down, without a shadow of a doubt. You know, and you know, Steve Round as well behind him was was an excellent coach as well. And obviously the head of that was Jim Smith. Let them they were they were able. Jim Smith let them do their do their job. And I think if if it wasn't if it wasn't for the old brigade, so to speak, as in Jim Smith going, you know, I don't, I don't need to worry. I'll just come on a Thursday and I'll see him a bit on the game for the Saturday and I'll see a bit on the Monday. Yeah, he was always there. You know, he was always looking out his his window at the, at the training ground, you know, but he left it up to Steve McLaren and Steve Round and they two guys, you know, Steve McLaren was, you know, he was, a, was on a different planet and it's no surprise that he got the, the England manager's job, you know, but as a coach, you know, he would improve players, no doubt. A hundredfold, and it's not a surprise that he went to Manu either under Alex Ferguson. Same type of manager as probably Jim Smith, in the sense probably didn't do a lot on the training field, but you know had had Steve McLaren doing you know the things that he had to do. From Derby, your next big experience in English football is, is Portsmouth, and and some great memories at Portsmouth. Before we talk about some of those memories, I have to ask you about two players in particular. So I apologise in advance for being. Been a bit of a fanboy here, but no just what was it like playing with Paul Merson and Teddy Sheringham? Because they are two players who are, for me, just technical quality of the highest order. Both of them, you could argue, didn't have the, the greatest amount of pace, but in terms of skill level, I mean, you, you, you'll struggle to find many better in the Premier League years. No, I was I was fortunate enough to, you know, when I went down there, there was it, there was it, we were a, an average side, you know, and I've never ever saw one player, you know, turn the club around and have so much of an influence in, a, in one club as Paul Merson did, you know, and that is not just purely his ability, but Paul Merson, when he came in, you know, along with Harry, probably lifted that club, and credit goes to Milan Mandridge, the chairman as well, probably lifted that club for the the, the, the uh, coattails and made it a Premier League club. You know, Paul Merson was absolutely sensational in every part of the world. You know, did he did he run? Did he chase back? Probably not. You know, but the effect that he had when we were all doing his running. You know, we as a, we as every single other person were was happy to do Paul Merson's running in the sense of because when he got the ball, we knew that something was going to happen. You know, and he's. The biggest credit to me that I can say to Paul Merson and Teddy Sheringham is, you know, Teddy especially, well, Paul Merson especially, Teddy was a little bit older at that point, but Paul Merson is the only player, the only player in my whole career that I've seen that doesn't have to train the way he plays and still be exceptional in in games, that can turn it on in games. You know, he's, he's probably so left-footed, it's unbelievable. You know, but what a what a player! What you know, he was absolutely sensational. I I, I honestly can't probably left footed, sorry, right footed. He, he can't even I can't even comprehend 
this guy, how good he was at his prime. You know, we, I was fortunate enough to get him when he was, I think he was 32. I think he was 32 or 34. And absolutely incredible, incredible. And although he didn't have genuine, genuine pace, he was, he was relatively quick. Whereas Teddy, on the other hand, was so sharp over the, you know, you hear it all the time. He was so sharp over the two yards. And, you know, I can only think of, you know, when we got to, when we got to the Premier League and Teddy Sheringham came, was probably when I really knew how big Teddy Sheringham was. Because when we were going, I had never seen this before as a player. When we were going to, you know, going in flights up to, you know, say we were going to play Liverpool or whatever, or, you know, whoever. And the amount of people that just went round Teddy Sheringham to get his autograph was beyond belief. You know, I had never, ever seen that. And Teddy Sheringham was such a professional that it was, you know, he was 37, I think he was 37 at the time. 36, 37. And, you know, such a professional player that was, you know, incredible shape, incredible enthusiasm for the game, incredible technique and ability. And for a guy that was 37, 30, 36, 37, probably the sharpest person I've ever seen over two yards in my whole career, even at that age. See those two guys in particular, Paul Merson and Teddy Sheringham, how did they mix in with the dressing room? Were the guys who would integrate themselves fully or would they be slightly more laid back and step away from it? No, I I think Merce was different because Merce played when we were in the championship. You know, he didn't. He didn't go to the Premier League. You know, so it was really he. He immersed himself for that year into the club. You know, and done whatever he could to help players and be a friendly guy. He was. He was. He was such a really such a genuine, genuine person. You know, and I've got nothing but admiration for Paul Merson and Teddy Sheringham. You know, Teddy came in. He was probably a little bit quieter, but he was a really, really funny guy as well. You know, he had real dry sense of humour. You know, but he, you saw what he done, you know, on the training pitch and he admired the way that he trained and everything else. So, you know, he he was someone that took you on and you understood how professional you had to be, you know. And one other person that was, when I was at Portsmouth was Robert Prozanecki. I played with Robert Prozanecki at Portsmouth as well. And he probably didn't have the impact at Portsmouth that Paul Merson did. But, He's probably the best player that I've ever been privileged to be in the same side as. And when you talk about Prozaneki when he comes into Portsmouth at that time, just just again, what was it like when? Because this is what I think always think about Harry Redknapp. He's he's a sort of guy who always seems to be able to pull a rabbit out of a hat and get a player into a club, no matter where he's been. Where you go, wow, that's a statement signing. So yeah. How did how did Harry manage the whole dressing room? Because again, he's another guy. I've been lucky enough to speak to Harry, and a lot of people, to, when they talk about him, say, when it comes to man management, you will not find someone better. He could make you feel a hundred million dollars. You know that's 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 Harry in a nutshell. But also, he was very good tactically as well, and he probably doesn't get as, as much credit for that. You know, as he does the man management side. You know, I think. I think the biggest thing for me with Harry was he gave he, he gave people leeway to do, you know, they, he, he gave them enough rope that they would 
come back and they would do for him, which others don't. You know, he wasn't a disciplinarian as such, you know, but he made sure that you were doing the right things in training and the right things when it came to games, game time. And I'll echo, I'll echo what Paul Merson said, you know, recently. Harry Redknapp is the best man manager that I have ever worked under, ever, in the sense of making me feel that, you know, I was on a level with Paul Merson and Teddy Sheringham, which I, which I wasn't, but he made me feel that way. See, as you say, that's seed for a manager to have that impact in his whole squad. It's, it's, it's amazing, and I like the fact you've mentioned tactically, because that's a, a thing that's very commonly, as you know, sort of said towards Harry, and the one the season at Portsmouth I really want to focus on is the, 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 the year the club wins the championship, because yeah. Harry talks about when he comes into Portsmouth where the club was steady, but you would never have backed him, really, to, no. to be a team that got promoted, whereas he came in and thought, if I can get X, Y, and Z and add them to this group, we'll go up. So how did it feel going from the season before where it was steady but but not going anywhere, you would say, very quickly to, no. to that championship season where it just completely clicked into place and everything seemed to, to, to work in, in Harry's favour and in, in your favour as, as a player in a team? I, th- I, think, I think people forget that, you know, the two years before that we stayed up in the the last day of the season in the championship, you know, which was which was League One at that time, you know, the championship was League One, so we stayed up on the last day of the season, and then two, two years later we were promoted, you know. And as I say, Harry Harry came in, and I always remember the close season, thinking Portsmouth Portsmouth have just signed Shaka Hislop, have just signed signed Ariane Dazou, have just signed Matt Taylor, have just signed Paul Merson, just signed Steve Stone. I've just signed Todorov and thinking, how am I getting in this team? Well, that Gianluca Festa, they signed Gianluca Festa as well. And me thinking, right, well, if I'm playing wide right, Steve Stones plays wide right, Matt Taylor plays wide left. You know, these are two guys that came in and they're going to play. You know, so I have to do something differently. I have to do something close season that I've never done before. You know, so... I ended up at the gym near enough every day, working really hard fitness-wise, trying to be the best that I could be. And then when I got, got into pre-season, you know, I was looking at it and going, I'm going to play wherever Harry wants to play me or wherever I get a game, whether it's up front, centre-mid, right midfield, right back, right wing back, left wing back, left back, whatever. Wherever he asks me to play, I'm going to give my 100% and make sure that he knows no matter what, I'll be ready whenever I get the call, which invariably I'll get the call because there'll be injuries, there'll be suspensions, and then it's up to me to try and break into that team. And that's, you know, I wasn't in the squad. I wasn't in the squad for the first three games, I don't think, not even on the bench. And then Steve Stone got injured. I think he'd done, his, done, done something, his Achilles, I think it was. Can't remember, can't remember. And he was out till probably December and I got in and played right wing back. And, and, Done done well, I believe that done well. The fans were on my back, you know, they were booing my name when it was getting read out, but Harry kept playing me. The players kept believing and saw what I was giving to the team. You know, I wasn't the most cultured, you know, in that team, but what I was was probably one of the fittest and one of the guys that you knew what you were going to get. You were going to get 100% effort. You were going to get, 
you know, if you're down in the trenches, you're going to be, I was going to be one of the, the, the players that they wanted to be there with them, you know, and then come the turn of that year, you know, Matt Taylor, Steve Stone gets, comes back and Matt Taylor gets injured and the other, the second half of the season, I ended up playing left wing back and, you know, by the end of the season, the fans were singing and chanting my name and, you know, I played probably 40 games, I think, that season, the best part of 40 games that season, considering I wasn't even in the in the squad for the first three games, you know, and for me, it was probably the, the best part, best time in my career, you know, because I loved the club, I loved Portsmouth, I played that season with a double hernia as well from, from day one, I went in for a hernia the previous season, it didn't work and ended up the first game, probably the the first pre-season game, I felt that it was it came away. The mesh had came away, so you know I played the whole season with a double hernia, uh, and was delighted. You know that we we won the league. You know, and there was there was important important games that in in the day in day games. You know, I think we drew one each at Leicester. We drew two two at Walsall when we weren't playing really well. Off the top of my head, you know, and that was that was a real real for me. Because I was probably the I was myself, Nigel Quasi, Linvoy Primus, and Linvoy Primus and Gary O'Neill were probably the only ones that get kept from the previous regime in the previous previous season. You know, so so for me to play that amount of games and Gary, uh, sorry, Linvoy Primus played pretty much every game, and so did Nigel Quasi. And for us, we were probably the ones that stepped up to the plate and gave our all for it. You know, and. When Harry took over initially, we were still, you know, in the, we were the previous season. You know, he was probably having a look at people. We weren't going to get relegated, but we were never going to get, we were below mid-table. So he was probably looking at and saying, right, who can I, who can, who's going to be an asset here? Who can we trust? Who can, is going to, is willing to give us whatever it takes? You know, and for me to go down there and, you know, in a team that was, it was difficult at times. You know, the fans were on my back, you know, a lot that season, especially the first half of the season. The second half, it was it was different. The second half of the season, it was different. You know, and to walk away with, you know, a winner's medal, a championship winner's medal, promoted to the Premier League, you know, was, was a sensational thing for me and an unbelievable feeling. I was literally about to mention the fact that winning a league at any level, whether it's, uh, you look at Scotland, whether it's League Two, Lone League in Scotland or... Premier League in England, Championship in England, any level of football, a league title is the best, for me, the best medal to get because it's not a Leiter Cup competition where sometimes you can have a purple patch that gets you over mm-hmm. the line, but a lot of people look and go, well, so-and-so should have won it or whatever. Yeah, yeah. When it comes to a league title, it's a marathon, not a sprint, the famous cliche. Yeah. And when you look back at that, as you've just mentioned, the pride you must have must just burst when you, whenever you think about it because... The championship is well, old first division as it was then, but the championship as we know it now, it's a hell of a league. Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday. Yeah. It was it was the same back then. You know, it's no it's no different. It's no different now than what it was then. You know, it was an absolute grind of a season. You know, in a, in a league, it's a real, real difficult league because you don't get you don't get any respite. You don't get any you know easy games. Don't, there's no games that you can play at you know seventy percent. You know, and still come away with get one and what and wins. You know, you have to be a hundred percent all the time. And you know, for us, we have to. We had to do that. You know, I think I think we went the first. I think we won the first six games, and then we get beat at Norwich. 
beat off Norwich, I think, was the first defeat we had after seven games. I think it was that. Uh, you know, and that set is in real, real good stead. You know, but I think the players that came in took it up a notch and the manager took it up a notch. And, you know, me is is one of the, the, the longest serving players at that present moment in time. I had to had to step up my game and I had to do whatever it would take to to do something different, to to get in the team and have an opportunity to stay in the team and, you know, be a part of what something special that was happening. And that's what I've done, you know, so there's there's times where you, you have to you have to make sacrifices and you know I had to make sacrifices that close season but you know and throughout the season but it, it worked out hugely, hugely well for me and you know fulfilling. In terms of the Premier League, Kevin, again, it's a question that I, I love getting to ask guys like yourself because you've been there and done it, whereas people like me only get to watch <laughs> it. What's the speed of the game like in the Premier League? Because it's something that when, whenever, again, you watch it on TV, even back in the, the early 2000s or the late 90s, people always talk about that you get punished if you make any mistake whatsoever. Yeah, you do. You do. You know, I think I think if you look at it, you know, you get to a certain point, you know, you get to certain, a certain point in the pitch, probably halfway. You know, it's obviously less now, but, you know, back then people would let you have the ball, you know, to a certain point and then they would go and pressure you. Whereas now they... they do a real high press across every team pretty much does a high press now. But you know, one mistake, one bad pass, one misplaced tackle or, you know, any one one slip up could cost you. You know, and that's that's what it is because the level the level that these players are playing at is exceptional. You probably I don't think you really see it on the television. You you don't really get a real feel for it unless you're there and how how much quality there is. You know, throughout every single team, it's not as if it's just one team. It's it's every it's every team. It's every team that has real, real quality. And uh, that has real, real quality in it. And you know, at any point, there's a fantastic player just waiting to to pounce. You know, it's a, a little bit of cat and mouse as well. You know, and anything that happens, bang, it's game over. It can be game over in an instant. You know. It, as the, as the old cliche says, only takes a second to score a goal, and that that can happen. You know, you can be dominating games, and before you know it, you can be two 0 down. Following Portsmouth, you had a, a few loan spells. You, you joined Stoke permanently, played under Tony Pulis while you were there a couple of times with Boss Camp in yeah. between. What was it like at Stoke, and and how do you reflect on life after Portsmouth in relation to to the English clubs you've played for? Because I'll come to them firmly soon. Yeah, I think I think I was fortunate enough that you know after the, after the league winning after the winning winning the league, I got uh, to go to Norwich on loan under Nigel Worthington and uh, Mickey Adams was there I think as well. Not a lie, Mickey Adams wasn't there. It was Nigel Worthington, uh, and you know he he taught me a lot in the sense of pre- preparation for games, methodical being methodical as a manager. And in that sense, you know, he was he was different from Harry. I'm not saying that Harry wasn't methodical, but Harry knew that he had the best players. And if that team had scored two goals, then we would have scored four goals. Whereas Nigel Worthington at Norwich had assembled a really, really good team. He had brought myself and Peter Crouch in and loan. Uh, Darren Huckerby was there as well. You know, Paul McVeigh, you know, uh, so there was Rob Green was in goals, you know. Uh, so they had a real Adam Drury at left back. So there was real, real quality there, you know. And I was fortunate enough to work there and 
and see Norwich as a club and as a as a city. And the club is fantastic. And the owner Delia Smith is you know a tremendous tremendous person. You know, a really really genuine nice person and wants the best for the club and the in the city as well. And I was fortunate enough that I played enough games that I got a winners medal from that as well. You know so. Two league winners medals to the Premier League in, in two seasons, you know, was was nice, you know. And then I went, to, then you know, I came back and Tony Pulis was at Stoke and wanted to sign me. And I thought, yeah, because I really, I really enjoyed working under Tony. You know, I, I, he he taught me a hell of a lot in the the physical side and the the shaping side as as a, as a team because we done shape pretty much every day, every single day, eleven aside. And yeah, it was a bit monotonous at times. You know, you knew what you were going into, but everybody knew their job, which was why his team's done so well. You know, they didn't concede many goals. You know, they didn't score many goals, albeit, but they didn't concede that many goals. And his train of thought was, if you don't concede, you'll always get a chance, and it's up to you to take that chance. You know, so I felt that I felt that it was a good fit for me uh, going to going to Stoke, but. It just didn't work out. You know, I had a lot, a lot, a hell of a lot of injuries uh, at Stoke through, you know, just unfortunateness, I think. And didn't probably play as well as, as I did, you know. And probably looking back on it, it wasn't it wasn't a mistake going because it's a huge, huge club and I felt that it was it was a right move. I knew the manager, you know, the manager knew me. He knew that I would give him 100% no matter what. But it was just one of the ones that, you know, I had a lot of issues injury-wise and it just, I didn't really get a run of games to show what I could do. You know, I was sort of in for maybe four games and then I was injured, came back after maybe a month, get another couple of games and then I would re-injure myself. You know, so it was it was, it was was pretty horrific for me in that sense. Uh, but the footballing club was, you know, the support were, were excellent. You know, I, I got a lot of stick from them and rightly, probably rightly so, you know, because they thought they were buying this player that had just helped a team get to the, the Premier League and you know I was probably a shadow of myself in that sense and because of just purely because of all the injuries I could never ever get back fully fit. Was it always a plan of yours Kevin towards the end of your career to return to Scotland and is that how the move to Dunfermline came about? No, no it wasn't. I, I, hadn't, I hadn't planned hadn't planned to come back. I had an opportunity to go to you know the America uh, just when I was in, when I was at Stoke, and I felt that I was just a little bit young to go to America, uh, and and knocked it back and stayed at Stoke and went to Carlisle, you know, and then went and loan at Walsall, and you know, when my contract went up at Stoke, was up at Stoke. Walsall one said they wanted to sign me. They offered me a contract. It was a year, a one year contract, uh, which I didn't think I didn't think was you know relevant to what I needed at that time. You know, Dunfermline offered me a two-year contract and, you know, I went, I went coming back up the road, I, I went for pretty much the security. I felt that I could, I could have done, you know, I could have played in the Premier League again, you know, but I felt that, you know, the two-year contract with Dunfermline was probably the best on the table at that point and, and went and I saw what Stephen Kenny was trying to do. I had a chat with Stephen Kenny and the, the players that were there, you know, Stephen Glass, Stephen Glass was there, you know, Nipper Thompson was there, you know, Greg Shields. Uh, there was there was lots of quality. Uh, Paul Gallagher as well was there, Andy Kirk. So, you know, there was a there was a lot that I felt that, you know, we could probably push and get promoted for to the Premier League. You know, and that season we started really, really poorly. Really, really poorly. 
you know, and by probably nine games in, we, I knew we were probably we were never going to get relegated, but we we never we weren't going to get promoted, and you know it was it was it was a tough time. You know, I get get injured injured again, broke down there again, and you know that was pretty much the, that was probably the story of my last five years in football, uh, getting injured and coming back, getting injured again, and then the final the final nail in the coffin was I was over I was over in in Spain looking in a window and you know. Went to turn right and done my knee, and that was done the outside of my cartilage, and that was me for for good. What I wanted to to touch on you there, you mentioned that injury at the end, which which injuries can happen in, in the most unlikely circumstances, as you've mentioned. But as football fans, I think a lot of the time we see injuries um, years ago it would have been teletext. Now it's on an app or it's Sky or whatever, and I think we see them like statistics where oh, he's out for a couple of weeks or he's out for a couple of months. But mm-hmm. there's a lot more to an injury than that. There's obviously the mental uh, fatigue of trying to rehab and come back, as well yeah. as the physical pain you have to go through as well. Just describe what it's like trying to get back from an injury, because I imagine the wee boy within yourself or the wee girl, if it was a female player I was speaking to within you saying, I need to get back as quickly as possible, whereas at times, maybe that's not the wisest thing to do? No, I, th- I think, you know, I, I believe that you're a football player to play football. You're not a football player to sit on the bench. You know, yeah, I understand that you have to sometimes, but if for me, if it was about going out and loan or, or play or sitting on the bench, I'd go out till, I'd go out and loan every day of the week. Uh, but the injury side of things is really, really difficult. It's difficult to overcome because... It wasn't as if I was getting different injuries. It was pretty much the same injury consistently, obviously apart from the knee injury. Uh, so it was always a, a torn calf muscle. You know, I would come back, it would feel really good. I'd go to training and then I would do it again. I would do all the rehab and it would tear again. And, you know, you would go in, same again, same, same again, six weeks, you know, four weeks, do a little bit, you know, sometimes extend it to six weeks without doing really anything or just slightly on the bike and then you would go, yeah, this feels really good. I'm doing all the doing all the, the calf raises, the calf exercises, the eccentric stuff. And then you would go and get do two weeks training and then you would break down again or you would go and get a month in. And then psychologically for me it was just really, really difficult. You know, you, you get to the point where you go, Am I ever going to get back? What's the point? You know, and psychologically it, you find it difficult. You find it difficult getting for it you know you do all your rehab you know that's one thing that I always done I always done my rehab but you know you do it consistently and it's the same thing over and over and over and over again you know and nobody can get to the root cause of it you know and that's that's the biggest thing you know you get you get insoles made that's meant to do a bit that'll take the pressure off this and that and they don't work and you, you get back and then you break down again and you know it's just constant 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 and you know that's that's the hardest part. The mental, the mental, the mental side of it there is so so difficult. You know, one one long injury you can deal with. You know, you can get your head round and go right. Okay, I'm really really down for the first month, but the rehab I know I'm going to be back by this time. You know, but when you're get when you're getting an injury, you're out for six weeks. You're doing all the rehab. It feels really good. You're doing excellent. You know, you're doing excellent in the gym out with the physio and then you go into full training and you break down again after two weeks, you know, and you know you're out for another six to eight weeks again. You know, it's it's really, really difficult, you know, and that's the same, but at least with maybe a break or, you know, a cruciate, 
at least you know you, there's a plan for you there. You know, and more often than not, you get back no problem from, you know, a break and a cruciate because there's a process to go through, you know, but with a muscle injury, you, you don't know. You just don't know what's going to happen there with it. You know, and obviously the, the calf that kept breaking down was obviously weak. You know, I had to do all my stretches, everything, and that was, I was really, really pernickety about my warm-up and making sure that I was, I was warmed up 100%. You know, I probably took my, my, my warm-up more serious than any other player. Uh, and I wanted to make sure that I was ready, you know, and both mentally and physically. And I'd done everything that I could to get back and it just kept breaking down. And eventually you go, you sometimes try to give up the ghost at, at points. You know, you give up the ghost for, you know, maybe a day or two and you go, there's not even any point. And then you get back in your head and you go, hey, I'm going to get back to this. You get back into it, you know. The physio was great. Jerry Docherty, who's the, the Dundee physio, was absolutely fantastic with me when I was in Dunfermline. You know, he was he was a real a real rock in in a, in different times at different times there. You know, and he's probably uh, we have a, we have a joke. I probably probably the the most the person he's seen physio wise the, the most in his whole career. I think you know, and it was just down to you know calf injury after calf injury really. Overall, Kevin, how do you how do you look back in your career? Because we talked at the start about your starting your career at Hibs, scoring important goals at home at Easter Road, the Derby goal as well, which you fondly remember, playing in the Premier League, two different clubs, winning championship medals. Uh, just again, how do you how do you sum up the career? Because when you look at what you've achieved, there'd be players there that would that would kill for even half of that. Mm-hmm. I th- I- to be honest, uh, I should have done better in my career. I genuinely believe that. I think if you're looking at it, it's you know probably a B plus, a B minus. I would think, uh, you know, I, for what I've done in the games, been you know really, really exceptional. You know, had to come through a lot of tough times. I think if I had, I probably got a fair run at it, I would have done better. But at the end of the day, I should, I should definitely have done better. I should have played more games in the Premier League. I think, you know, uh, but. At the end of the day, I could have, I think I could have worked harder, you know, after training. You know, I think it was at the time probably when I was about 28, 29 that the real, you know, sports science stuff really came in, really came in, you know, and I really took, I really took note of it. And it was probably, probably the the season, the season that I got promoted with, with Portsmouth was the start of, you know, really taking all that on board. Uh, watching my diet, watch what I was doing, making sure I was enough fluids, getting rest and stuff, you know. And then for for me to go to to go to Stoke, you know, and break down that that much was a real real disappointment, you know. So I, because I, I felt as if I could have played a, a lot longer, and that I should have played a lot longer and a lot more games, you know. I think I've only played something like three hundred and three hundred odd games, you know. So that tells you how many injuries I must have had, you know. And, that was, that's the thing, you know. I think I could, uh, I could have, I could have, and should have done better than than what my career does. But also, when I look back on it, and you know, I've got three league winners' medals, two getting promoted to the Premier League, one getting uh, promoted to league uh, to league league one. We were also, you know, so I've, when I look back in my career, it's it's a fantastic, fantastic that you've got three winners' medals, three league winners' medals. But you know. For me, the biggest disappointment is probably not getting a Scotland cap. I genuinely felt that 
I deserved one. I was I was good enough to play for Scotland, especially, you know, at the time the amount of players that were getting caps for for nothing, you know, and I was down playing playing my trade at the the top, very top of the Premier League. It was already the Championship, you know, and people that were in and out at Celtic and Rangers were getting caps right, left, and centre, and people in the Premier League that you know, in Scotland that were getting caps and yeah, I was down in this, the toughest league and pretty much the toughest league in the world, playing week in, week out, uh, and sitting in the top of top of the league and, and not getting a got not getting a, an opportunity to get a Scotland cap was for me is probably the, the biggest disappointment in my career. Before I let you go, Kevin, just a few quick fire questions. Um favourite sport outside of football? Uh, American football. In terms of American football, who's the player that you've loved watching over the years? Uh, I, th- I, th- I think there's, you know, I, I like I like Cam Newton, you know, the quarterback side of things, you know, uh, uh, going back, going back, you know, there's, there's loads, there's loads. I don't think there's anyone, probably one person, you know, that I go, yeah, they're the, they're the main person. I just think I like, I just like the sport in general, in general for, for what they do, how much, you know, how much tape, how much film they they watch and how dedicated and how much you know sort of homework they take you know from a from a coaching side of things I think we can do a lot more uh, you know football wise uh, I think we can take a lot from American football. Where's your favourite place to go on holiday? Uh, probably Tenerife, mate. I think I think it it has everything that I need for the kids. You know it's it's warm. I, I know it well. You know. The the place we go is is we got apartment over there that we go to you know regularly. So for me and the family and the, the kids, Tenerife, you know, I really really enjoy it. Are you a film man or a box set man? Eh, uh, box set. What what? Give me two box sets you would recommend to listeners. Eh, uh, twenty four, ancient probably, and uh, Game of Thrones. Oh, great choices. Favourite music? <laughs> uh, dance music. Fair play. I, I wasn't sure what you expected. <laughs> um, in terms of the kids, you mentioned the fact that obviously you, you've, you've got kids. What's the yeah. one programme that they watched when they were growing up that just drove you mad? Well, I've got, I've got a girl at 20, girl at 13, sorry, 14, just turned 14, a boy at five and a girl at one. So, Right at this present moment in time, it's Garfield. It was driving me mad. Prior to that, the tweenies probably. <laughs> There's always one, as I say, I've got, I've got, I've got a niece and, and she's into uh, Paw Patrol and stuff. And as soon as yeah. you hear the theme song, my eyes just completely roll. So I know you're playing. A few yeah. football ones before you go. Okay, um, yeah. Best players you've played with? Best players, Paul Melson, uh, Robert Prozanecki, Stefani Ranio. Toughest direct opponent? Dennis Irwin. What was the, the ground that you played at that was your favourite ground to walk out at where you thought, wow? Uh, Parkhead. Toughest ground, and I mean this, it might, it might be a ground the team did well at, but maybe mm-hmm. yourself, for whatever reason, didn't really perform at? Uh, Partick Thistle. For Most- thrills. <laughs> Most underrated teammate? Uh, Lenvoy Primus. Ronaldo or Messi? Oh. For me, 
for the type of player that I was and how hard he's worked at uh, Ronaldo. Last question I've got for you, putting you on the spot here. Who would you rather play under, Alex Ferguson or Brian Clough? Alex Ferguson. Oh, that was very quick. Not even a moment's thought there. No, Scots, he's a Scotsman. Well, in terms of, funnily enough, just before we go, uh, I interviewed someone who played under Brian Clough who was Scottish, and you mentioned Scotsman. That's what Brian Clough referred to him as every single day, <laughs> rather than his name. So, yeah. uh, uh, good on you for sticking with Alex Ferguson after that story. But, Kevin, it's, it's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for your, your openness, your honesty when, when we talked about management and opportunities um, across the spectrum in society for black and ethnic minorities. That's something that has to be addressed. But, also, as well, thank you for talking honestly and openly about your career, some incredible teammates and, and some incredible achievements as well. So thanks for your time and, and I wish you all the very best for the future. Cheers, Callum. Thanks very much. Anytime. Really enjoyed it. Much appreciated, mate.